Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to see a few new faces, too. And y'all coming back. Thank you for starting off uh, the day right with the Gospel of John. We are in the 10th chapter still. This is our fifth part of the 10th chapter. I think we'll finish it today. So if you open your Bibles to Gospel of John chapter 10, we're going to start looking at the 31st verse in just a little bit. But I want to pick up on a couple of key points from last week. Last week I made a point to say that uh, Jesus was condemning them in a sense because they didn't really hear him. He's been in this great allegory of the great shepherd. He's been saying, my sheep hear my voice. And how do we know they hear? Because not only do they hear, they obey what they hear. So Jesus links us, and we talked about that Greek word, Ako, or something close to that, that we get the word acoustics to hear. We talked about how that Greek word speaks to the fact that it's, we don't just hear. It doesn't fall on deaf ears. It's something we, that comes inside of us and lives. The gospel does it. We, we only know that we are his sheep by the way we obey, not just think we hear and let it go on. And I wanted to read for you, I, I always have a few, I think I read one uh, of the ancient church fathers last week, but there was a couple more that I wanted to touch on that I didn't have time for last week that I thought was so powerful. So let me find it here. And it is from, uh, it is from one of the great bishops in Alexandria, Egypt, St. Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria. I don't know the exact years of his life, somewhere in the uh, 3rd or 4th century. And he said this, he said, the mark of Christ's sheep is their willingness to hear and obey. Just as obedience is the mark of those who are not his. We take the word, just as disobedience, I don't know if I said obedience or just disobedience, just as disobedience is the mark of those who are not his. We take the word here to imply obedience to what has been said. People who hear God are known by him. No one is entirely known, no one is entirely unknown by God. But to be known in this way is to become part of his family. Therefore, when Christ says, I know mine, he means I will receive them and give them a permanent mystical relationship with myself. Now, it might be said that inasmuch as he has become man, he has made all human beings his relatives, since all are members of the same race. We are all united to Christ in a mystical relationship because of his incarnation. Yet those who do not preserve the likeness of his holiness are alienated from him. So, quote, my sheep follow me, says Christ. By a certain God-given grace... Believers follow in the footsteps of Christ. 
no longer subject to the shadows of the law, they obey the commands of Christ and guided by his words rise through grace to his own dignity, for they are called children of God. And when Christ ascends into heaven, they also follow him. That's kind of a lengthy quote, but I wanted to give it to you to show you how even in those days, that 3rd and 4th century, St. Cyril of Alexandria is making a clear point that to hear means to obey. To really truly hear means to obey. And I really like the point he brings out that, uh, that really all human beings are God's children. Yet there are those that are his sheep that know him and those that don't. You know, because of Jesus's, Jesus took on human flesh, he, you know, in that sense, glorified all human race, you know, deigned to take on our form. And so all humanity, we know, was created in God's image. And so all humanity is, in a sense, holy and worthy. But yet there are still those. There's the, there's the flock of God that hear and obey and those that don't. Um, we led into a discussion last week about the concept of not being able to be snatched out of the Father's hands that we read. And we talked a lot about that great word, that great theological word, predestination. And uh, how our Calvinist cousins, if you will, in the Christian faith, think of predestination as something that was born out of God's will before the beginning of the world, before creation. God just decided some to be saved and some not to be saved. And, uh, and we say, no, that doesn't quite square with how we read scripture. Uh, and one of the things that they say is that, uh, you know, it says right here in John 10, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You're secure. You're eternally secure. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. And we say, no, that's not quite how we read scripture. We, we read scripture to say that, one, Predestination is a theological doctrine we must believe because it's in the Bible, but it's based not on some arbitrary decision of God. It's based on God's knowledge. The book of Romans, Paul calls it his foreknowledge. That's a word that probably is kind of uh, a misnomer. Foreknowledge. To God, it's not for because it's not before anything. God just exists. To him, it's just knowledge. For us, we think of it as God's foreknowledge. Before the foundation of the world, God knew everything that would ever be. And he built his plan for the world based on that knowledge. That means he knows, he knew then and he knows now whether you and I are going to persevere in this life and truly be saved. But that doesn't mean he determined it that way, which is the difference. When you say it's God's will that made it predestined, then he determined it that way. That leaves us not free beings. It leaves us without free will. And we see here... uh, in the words of Origen, one of the second, he lived around the year 250, middle of the third century. Origen was a little controversial in some of the later times of his life. He's, he was not considered a saint of the church. He was, he was uh, in his later years, actually started to teach what sounded like universal salvation, that everyone would ultimately be saved. Uh, but Origen had a lot of good things to say as well. He came also out of that school of Alexandria. Uh, out of the church of Egypt in those early centuries. He said this about this idea of snatching from the father's hand. He said, for no one snatches us away from his hands. That's a quote. According to what was said in the gospel, according to John. Yet it is not written that just as no one snatches us away, 
no one falls from his hands. It's not written that way, he says. For one who is self-determined is free. And I say, no one will snatch us away from the hand of God. No one can take us. But we are able to fall from his hands if we are negligent. That's year 250, okay? This ancient understanding of this whole idea of predestination as God's foreknowledge and that we are free beings. Yes, we, while it's true, we don't have to worry about falling from grace. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation. But by our own free will, we can choose to give it back. We can choose to apostatize, is the word, to turn away from God. And that was always the ancient position of the church. It wasn't until those Middle Ages and those arguments in the Protestant Reformation that this idea of eternal security that's unconditional based on the predetermined plan of God ever reared its, its head into theological circles. So if you have good friends that are perhaps maybe Baptists or Presbyterians or high Calvinists that think that way, just love them. You know, I don't think they're right, but we're going to love them anyway, right? Because <laughs> we're all sheep in the same flock, okay? That's not going to separate us. It's not going <laughs> to... What? <laughs> we're not going to... That's not going to separate us from the fellowship of God. It's, it's, it's not, a, not one of those kind of doctrines that's going to hurt us. But I do think it's a dangerous doctrine because I believe that any doctrine that says that uh, we're unconditionally secure and doesn't matter how we live is a dangerous doctrine because I believe the Bible from beginning to end calls us to holiness, calls us to live responsibly in, in the holiness of God. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. So as we kind of continue our study through trying to wrap up the 10th chapter, which has been one of my favorite chapters, I mean, you know, I told you chapter 6 was one of my favorite chapters, chapter 10 is one of my favorite chapters, uh, we're going to look at some of the response to these words. The Jews have a response for Jesus. So let's look at verse 31. Well, before I jump into that, did, I don't, all minds clear? Are all minds clear on this thought of predestination and how it is true, but yet it's not predetermined by God's will? I just want to be sure we're clear on that, because I think this is very important to our faith, as certainly as Wesleyans. Uh, Judas comes to my mind. He was a follower of Jesus, okay. yet he chose to betray him. He chose. We, we actually believe the scripture shows Judas had some internal struggles there, too, that, you know, he probably didn't, he made a choice, ultimately. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, observations? I went to a funeral, uh, a girl that used to work with me, she had committed suicide because mm. her husband had left her, and, uh -huh. and she was so depressed, and she thought she was going to come back. Well, her and her mother came to work, and she told her mother, she says, i got to go get something from the car. Mm. And it was parked up on the third floor, I think, in the parking garage, and she jumped off the Oh, couch. wow. How horrible. And... Uh, there was a couple of women that saw her, mm -hmm. and uh, and she was just laying there all all mm -hmm. twisted up, and, mm -hmm. and they says, "Are you okay?" And of course, she didn't answer. And so I went to her funeral, and her dad thinks that she's in heaven because she was such a good girl. Yeah, 
And I had a friend that says, well, we know better than that. Because hmm. she committed suicide. Wow. And I, and I wish I would have said, well, we're not the ones to be judged. Correct. Judge. It's right. between her and the Lord, because she could have asked for forgiveness on the way down. Yeah, well, you're right uh, in the sense that we should not judge, and it's sad when we see Christian people that judge. Uh, clearly, those that commit suicide are seriously ill, seriously depressed, seriously Ill, not not necessarily culpable for their actions in some sense, and and we just cannot know what's in a person's heart. So we should never say that. There have been churches through the ages that have said, we refuse to even bury people that have committed suicide because they felt that automatically sent them to hell. That's a judgment that only God can make because only God knows the human heart. So we never, ever should say that. So uh, you're right in that sense. You, you, uh, sad, sad story. I've, it, it, when that repeats itself, it's just so, so sad. Yeah, I heard something... Tree. They planted a tree. Planted a tree in her memory. She, yeah. Or she fell. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the father said what he said at the funeral, believing she her to be in heaven, because that's what I would want to believe too. I mean, I want to. We want to believe our loved ones are in heaven. We don't. You know, we look at the 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 best of them and the love that they lived, and we don't know the private pain that they had and uh, what uh, what caused them to do what they did. But we definitely know that God loved them, and they were never outside His grace. Good thoughts. Anybody else before we move on? Okay. Let's read verse 31, starting at verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, this quote, I said you are gods, unquote? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, quote, you are blaspheming, unquote? Because I said, quote, I am the Son of God, end quote. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had first baptized. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's stop right there. Um, I think that takes us up to the end of that chapter. The next chapter will pick up on the time that Jesus spends over there across the Jordan and he's at a place he goes to a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived that's where John was first baptizing where Jesus was actually baptized they say so uh, that's where we'll end but let's come back up and think about what interaction is happening here our story picks up with the Jews picking up stone now remember the Jews are the leaders of the Jews they're picking up stones and they want to stone him They want to kill him, don't they? 
I mean, there, there's even in, in the Greek language here, it talks about the, the word for picking up these stones. It's not talking about little rocks. They're not just picking up a rock to throw at a guy because they don't like him. They're carrying burdens. They picked up big stones. And we see that in the Greek language. They talk about the burden of picking up a rock and going to heave it at him. That's what they did. They used large boulders, as big as a human could pick up anyway, and to, to crush a person with. And they thought they had the right to do that because that was the penalty for blasphemy. So they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. That word came up a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember the context of how it came up. Somebody asked a question. But, but let's talk about it a little more. I think in the context of the unforgivable sin, it came up from somebody. What is blasphemy? Let's, let's think about it here. This is what they're accusing Jesus of. What is blasphemy? What is your understanding of blasphemy? Anybody? Lying. Lying, okay. What else do we understand about blasphemy? Portraying yourself as someone you're not. Okay. Portraying as someone you're not. Distorting the truth. Distorting truth, okay. Since God is on a high pedestal, wouldn't it be lowering him than what he really is? Okay. Lowering God's image. You're, there's, a, there's a theme running here that, of which you're all touching around, okay? Blasphemy isn't just lying. It isn't just uh, distorting truth. It isn't just uh, these things. But it is those things and more when done or said to or about God. Bl- I can't blaspheme against you, really. I mean, we're just two human beings, but blasphemy, that, that would, if I said something bad about you, that would be maybe gossip or sin or something like that. But blasphemy is done about or to God, said about God or done to God. So it's a serious charge. This is the ultimate sin, in other words, because it's, it's the ultimate sin about God and his holiness. It's to say, it's to insult. If we could use a word here, it's really to insult God. That's when you see the word blasphemy used in scripture, that's the context. Somebody is insulting God, either by saying he's not God, okay? That's why the the concept of that blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the idea of of the unforgivable sin uh, that we read about in the New Testament talks about blasphemy. If we say there is no God, then that's blasphemy. You know, we're, we're saying he doesn't exist, he isn't. And, and that's unforgivable because God can't forgive something that, that we don't believe. He can't forgive someone who doesn't believe in him. So, of course, the minute that person turns to believe in God, were they to repent, of course, then if they can be forgiven. So it's not that blasphemy can't be forgiven. It just can't be forgiven as long as it stays blasphemy. To well, stay that there is no God. Up to where they have no belief because they weren't around would that still be blasphemy? I think no. I, I would the short answer to that I think would be no because we're not we're not uh, if if I was raised not to believe in any God, that's the way I was raised. I didn't choose to say there is no God. So technically I'm thinking that's not blasphemy. But I'm thinking God is always calling out to everyone and you know there's a lot of people like that. 
There's a lot of people in the world that don't believe in God because they haven't been taught to. They haven't been raised around it. Or maybe they believe in other gods because that's the culture they were raised in. But this sin that we're speaking of here is the sin of knowing God and insulting him and saying, you are not really God. And in Jesus' case, it's Jesus not insulting God. It's Jesus claiming to be God's son, which they took as blasphemy because he's making himself equal with God. Okay, Jesus appears to them as a mere man. He's got flesh and blood. He has to eat and sleep just like they do. But he's claiming to be the son of God. And that's a, that's a bold claim. No one had ever claimed that and got away with it <laughs> because no one else could prove it. Okay, other people had claimed it. No one could prove it, though. And Jesus has been proving it. So Jesus sets up a logical argument for them. We don't often hear Jesus use logic. I mean, I think everything Jesus says is logical, but I mean, he actually sets up a logical argument here, which I, I think is kind of fun. Um, he looks at them and he says, okay, for what good work are you going to stone me for blasphemy? Oh, no, no, we can't argue with your works. It's not because you did good works. It's because you claim to be equal. You're the, you say you're the son of God. That's why we're going to stone you. And Jesus says, well, now, wait a second. In verses 34 and through 36, he says, he uses a, he actually quotes scripture here. Jesus quotes scripture. He's quoting the book of Psalms here. He says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, Psalm 82 in your Bibles, Psalm 82, if you look back. Let's look at the context of Psalm 82. Because that is what, if you look in your little references there, that's what Jesus is quoting. And he says, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? And you notice that in Jesus' speaking there, as John's writing this, it's a little g. Okay, now on the bottom of the board here, I wrote God's versus God. Okay, versus God's. Little g and big g. Okay, let's keep that in mind when you're reading here. Scripture says little g is what Jesus is quoting. Let's just read Psalm 82 for our general knowledge here. God stood in the assembly of gods. Notice the first one is a capital G, and at the end of that sentence it's a small g. God stood in the assembly of gods. He judges in the midst of gods, small g saying, how long will you judge unjustly and favor the persons of sinners? Judge an orphan and a poor man. Justify a humble and a poor man. Rescue a poor and needy man. Deliver them from a sinner's hand. They do not know nor understand. They carry on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth shall be shaken. I said, you are God's. Little g, that's what Jesus just quoted. I said you are gods, and you are all sons of the Most High. But you die like men, and like one of the rulers, you will fall. Arise, O God, now the big G, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the Gentiles. What is Psalm 82 saying? What are you hearing in that psalm? We know that God the Father... Father God is speaking, okay? And it says he's speaking, and that for opening, he stood in the assembly of gods. Now, 
maybe if a Greek person heard this or something, they're thinking, oh, God, your Jewish God is standing in the assembly of all our gods, like Zeus and all these others, you know, this Parthenon of gods, if you will. But that's not what he's saying. Okay, this is God the Father. He's stood in the assembly of gods. If you read on, there's clues. Who are these little G gods in Psalm 82? Who are the little G gods? The sons of the Most High. They are, but look at verse 2 with me, and you get a clue. How long will you judge unjustly? They're judges. Any of us who have the authority to judge others in a sense, you know, to decide in human judgments, maybe that's a court of, we think of a court of law, but even in those days they had people that had to make decisions. One of the first things that Moses had to do with the people of Israel, he realized there was no way he could govern the whole nation himself, and God said, appoint for yourself these 70 shepherds, or in this case, judges. And if we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, we could find references to these little G gods also. They're judges. They're people that are judging others. And what God is complaining about in Psalm 82 is they're judging unjustly. They're not doing right by the poor. They're not doing right by the needy. They're not doing right by uh, the, the people that... Uh, are, uh, he says, it, you judge and favor the persons of sinners. They're not only doing injustice to people in need, they're favoring people that are clearly sinners. I mean, this is an upside-down legal system, apparently. This is what was happening in the realm of men in those days. Of course, it happens still today, of course. Um, but as you read through there, he, he goes, he, look at verse 5. They do not know nor understand. They carry on in darkness. You can even hear God's mercy there. God is actually favoring the unjust and saying, some of these people don't even know they're being unjust. They don't even know they're carrying on in darkness. You can hear the pity of God there for the people that are being unjustly treated. I'm, I'm bringing this parallel out of Scripture because Jesus is quoting it. And why is he quoting it? When those Pharisees who know the law so well hear this, they know where Jesus is going with this. If scripture called you as humans, and really all of us, because it says at the end, like you said, they're all sons of God. Jackie, I know you commented on that. It says at the very end uh, of that psalm, you are gods and you are all sons of the Most High. So Jesus is saying, if scripture in your law tells, it, tells us that we're all little gods, okay, then, and I do the work that is a, only God can do, then isn't it logical that I'm the son of God? I'm actually more than just you little gods? See the logic to Jesus' argument here? It's brilliant. It's brilliant, and it has to just make them so mad because they can't argue with him. I mean, how do you argue with that kind of logic? I don't think logic always works in arguing the things of God, you know, you, because ultimately faith has to come in there, but it, it, does, it works here. I mean, it's just beautiful. So he says, look, I understand. If you don't want to believe my words, okay, I'm a man like you. You see me as a man like you. I'm flesh and blood. I'm a teacher standing here in Israel. If you don't want to listen to my words, I guess you have that right. But you have no right to disregard my works because my works prove I'm God. 
I'm, I'm paraphrasing for Jesus here, you know. You can't ignore my works, Jesus is saying. So when you see these works, he goes on to say there, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. They prove that I'm in the Father. He says, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Now that's a very curious phrase. I've been showing you and trying to point out to you along the way little clues that, that show us a Trinitarian theology of God. And here is yet another one. Here is, remember last week we talked about how Jesus said, I and the Father are one instead of am one. Because are one infers we. That's a plural sound. There, there's more than one of us. They're, they're different persons, but yet they're both God. And now this week it's being in. Okay, I and the Father, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So there's some kind of mystical connection here. But yet we're separate. This Trinitarian concept. Yes, look like question. Could it also be like um, in Egypt when the Pharisees worshipped other gods and say there were lots of things that happened like the Red Sea, um, the water to it's blood, blood mm -hmm. and all that because yeah. they were worshipping other gods. Mm -hmm. So that would be the small g. Right. Any, any type of God that people worship in this world is a small g. Absolutely. And sometimes we even make ourselves out to be gods. Uh, un, hopefully unwilling, unknowingly, but we do sometimes. Anytime we refuse to put God first, the God, the great God, Anytime we do that, we make ourselves out to be God in his place. It's very got to be very careful with how we live and talk. But I think there's something that we've got to latch onto here. Jesus is not backing away from this mystery. Okay, there, the, the Jewish mind could not fathom the concept of the Holy Trinity. Even today... Jewish Christians, okay, Messianic Jews, they are not, for the most part, Trinitarian Christians. They couldn't fathom that idea. I have a dear friend whom I've gotten to know who's a, Trini uh, a Jewish pastor here, he's a Christian Jewish pastor, and, and he, uh, he doesn't accept the Trinity. We've had some beautiful talks about it. We continue to talk about it. And, and I write about it, and it's in, in my book on death that I wrote last year, uh, life, it's about life and death, not just about death, but um, I talk a lot about Trinitarian concept, and he was very complimentary towards me because it's causing him to think. But why is it that the Jewish mind could not fathom this idea that, that God could be somehow triune for Jesus? I mean, they're getting what Jesus is saying. They just don't want to believe it. Because they've been it's been drilled into their mind they are a monotheistic people. What is monotheism? One God. A belief in one God. Mono meaning one. Theism meaning belief about God. Everyone else in the whole world <laughs> was polytheistic. 
the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, the, everyone else in the world, the Egyptians, everyone else had many, many gods. And here's the chosen people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. God marked them out specially, called them especially so that he could reveal himself as one God. And so it's just, they cannot enter into this thought. But yet all the clues are there from the very beginning. And it's, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And remember what we've learned there. We haven't studied the book of Genesis in here, but I've referred to it now and then. When God says, in the very beginning, it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? First line in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the word for God? What? Yahweh. Not yet. He does come out with Yahweh a little later. What Does anybody know the word for God used in that first verse of the Bible? I am. Nope. Oh. Nope. <laughs> Begins with an E. Elohim. That's right. Elohim. Elohim. What do we know about this word from linguistics of studying the Hebrew language? This is a plural word. This is a plural word. What does plural mean? <laughs> More than one. That's right. Even in their own Hebrew scripture, God, and, and when you read on in the Genesis story, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking about? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is plural, yet God is still one. It's a mystery. I, I just wish I could teach it better because then I would be the greatest teacher in the world. But I can't. It's just a mystery we have to accept. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to get through to him. You guys know this stuff. So in, in let's look at this word here. Let's look at the word... Um, His logic was, you know, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and you know scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sent, I mean, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? Look at that word consecrate. What is that word? If we could look at that word in the Greek, that word is called uh, hagiazo, okay? H-A-G-A, this is the English transliteration, hagazio, okay, something like, however you want to say that, hagazio. That's, that means holy, Hag, but, it, but it's more than that. It, it has kind of a, uh, a, a plural sending, if you will. He says the Father sent him there, um, sanctified, set apart. Jesus was actually sent, he said. The Father sent me into the world. Well, if the Father sent him into the world, where was he before he was sent? Heaven. <laughs> With the Father in heaven, that's right. So there's all kinds of clues here about the, the trinity of, of our Godhead and about Jesus and his nature as God. That it, it's the only thing. That's why I love to say to people, you know, Trinity is the only thing that makes sense. And that's why, from the very beginning of Christianity, the apostles and their successors, in those the people like I read sometimes in these early church fathers, they understood the Trinity. 
Now, nobody really put it into written form as a word until, you know, about 300 years after Jesus. That was in that first council, that Nicene Council. They only put it into a creed because they had to, because people were starting to teach crazy things, like Arius teaching that, you know, that teaching that Jesus was just a created lower being. Jesus wasn't really God. You know, that, so when these things... But the first 300 years of Christianity, it was just accepted. It was understood by Peter and Paul. And we can see that in the way they write. And by Ignatius and Clement and Irenaeus and all the guys that wrote after them the next couple of hundred years. And it, it, Trinity is the only thing that makes sense. God, it only, it's the only thing that makes sense of the scriptures. It's the only thing that makes sense, like I talked about last week, about God himself. Because love, God is love. And love cannot exist in a vacuum. There has to be something or someone to love. And God loves the Father. God loves the, I mean, God the Father loves the Son. They love the Holy Spirit. They love each other. There's this beautiful triangle of love. So all the love that you and I humanly express that seems to, to come natural to us is a, is a very lower form of love, but it's still uh, a reflection of God's love within the Trinity. So some of that might be kind of blowing your minds. Just let it soak in a little bit. But God's love, we are a reflection of God's love. We are a reflection of his Trinitarian love. And the family, we see that in the family, the father, the mother, the child, and even if it's just a single parent family, I mean, we know eventually there had to be two. Took took a man and a woman to make a child. So there was there was this triune nature of love, um, and it's fascinating that this is something that they can't wrap their minds around. And, and he's not even asking them. He's not asking. Jesus is not asking them to get theological. He's not asking them to embrace this theological mystery. He does, we never see Jesus say, hey, y'all, I'm trying to talk about a mystery theologically here, and you just need to embrace it. He doesn't say that. But he is asking them to embrace the obvious. And the obvious is, he's God. No one else could do what he does. So he is either God, as he claims to be, the Son of God, if you want to use that terminology. Jesus calls himself the Son of God. He is the Son of God, but still God. Because he says, I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. That makes him God. And a little bit later, it's going to get clearer. As the book of John develops, every chapter just gets more, it's clearer and clearer. And there's going to be a point where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You know, that just had to blow their minds. <laughs> okay, now he said it. He said, you know, because he, he just keeps getting clearer and clearer in the way he says it here. Um, so there's something supernatural, and I want to call you back happening here. I want to call you back to the words that I read from this uh, Alexandrian bishop in the beginning, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Notice what he said when he said when... Uh, when therefore Christ says, I know my own or I know mine, he means that I will receive them and give them a permanent mystical relationship with me. Early Christians always understood, as I, I think the Jews understood slightly, but the earliest Christians always understood, 
that this relationship that we have with Jesus is supernatural. We miss that in our modern world today. I'm going to tell you that we crave it, but we don't realize what we're craving. That's why the truth of the gospel needs to be told. You and I crave a mystical union with our creator. Okay? God created us. Humanity was, fell from grace through sin. And that curse falls to all of us. And so we are born into this world alienated from God. And we are yearning for union with him. We just don't know what we're yearning for. We're like the blind walking through this world until someone tells us what we're looking for. That's called the gospel. That's the good news. Remember the scripture that says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The apostle Paul even says, how will they know unless someone is sent to tell them? We're just wandering through the... So these other people that we're not supposed to judge, the people that don't think and act like us, all the people around us, we've got to love them because God loves them. And they're no different than you and I. They're just human beings that are lost seeking a supernatural relationship with something beyond themselves. They just don't know that it's the God we know until somebody tells them. So what do they do? They try to find ways to fill it. They try to find ways to seek that union. Some, some use all kinds of substances like drugs uh, to, to numb this pain. What is the pain? We think, oh, well, the pain's because of this relationship. No, at the very core of that pain is the lostness. At the core of all human pain is lostness. Okay? It gets lived out in in uh, physical ways, like maybe a parent that treats a child bad or a relational problem between people. But at the core of it all is lostness. Now, there's only one answer that will fulfill it, that will fulfill the need, that will fill it. This is the, there's an ancient, I can't it's a couple hundred years old. I can't remember when he lived. His name was Blaise Pascal. He was a philosopher a few hundred years ago, Blaise Pascal. And Blaise Pascal said that every human being has a God-shaped void. We're born into this world with a God-shaped void. And if it's God-shaped, there's only one thing that'll fill it. God. You know, as little kids, we try to teach them how to put a, you know, those little games where you put the circle toy into the circle hole. And the square toy into the square hole, and the trapezoid, whatever it is, into the whatever, you know. And, and, and you know, the little kid, will, you know, they're trying to take that square and shove it through that circle, and it's just not going to fit, no matter what they do. That's the image we get here from, from Pascal. Every human being is born with this God shaped void, and only God can fill it, only God will fit. And when we find him, St. Augustine, I think, is the one who's credited with saying this. St. Augustine said, my soul, and I'm paraphrasing him, of course, my soul will find no rest until it rests in thee, O God. There's a restlessness in humanity. That's why they're out there doing all these crazy things. There's a restless lostness. And Jesus is speaking to that. He's speaking to that supernatural relationship. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. 
Now, I'm going to jump you all the way to the things of the scripture, like the book of uh, is First Peter, I think. First, what does First Peter say? It always bugs me when I misquote First and Second Peter. You know, it was in the first book or the second book. I'm pretty sure it's in the first book, but let me double check it. Turn over there with me, because it's so pertinent. We've studied the book of Peter, the both books of Peter, in here before, but I just want to be sure because I'm. Uh, let's see, I think it's in First Peter chapter 1. Let me look real quick. Peter speaks to this uh, beautifully. And as soon as I look at it, it's probably Second Peter. Let's jump over to Second Peter. Yes, it's Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Look at it with me. Grace and peace, this is verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. What's Peter saying? He wants you to receive the grace from knowing God. And he says, of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us, and he speaks of God and Jesus in the same sentence and then follows it up by just saying his, as if singular. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which he, by which having given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be, and here's the key, if you don't have it underlined in your Bible, you should, that you may be partakers of his divine nature. Wow. You and I are invited to become, by the precious promises of Jesus Christ and his glory and his power, we have been invited to become partakers of his nature. You, you realize the supernaturality of that? <laughs> is that even a word, supernaturality? I don't know. It is now. It is now. Do you, do you real, do you, can you even comprehend? We must come to a place where we stop seeing Christianity as just a creed on a piece of paper, an intellectual assent to be believed. It is that. And it's a very logical one. And it makes a lot of sense through history, and there's a lot of great proofs for it, more than any other religion that's out there. Christianity makes sense, but we've got to stop embracing it as just that. Somehow, in thousands of years and hundreds of years of Reformation, we've lost the call to be supernatural partakers of the divine nature. Embrace that thought for a minute. Because that's what Jesus came into the world for. Jesus took on human flesh so that we could take on godness. Little g, of course. Okay? So the phrase goes like this, that, that Jesus became what we are by nature. He became human flesh. So that we could become what he is by faith. By faith, we can become partakers of the divine nature. I'm going to give you a beautiful example. 
There's no more beautiful example, I think, given to us. And that is the beautiful sacrament of Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. You can look at that bread and wine until you're blue in the face and only see bread and wine. Or by faith, you can look at it and see the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and become a partaker of the divine nature. And in an unspeakable mystery that no one can explain, your soul can be fed by Christ. Beautiful. Beautiful stuff. It's it's, it's beyond us. But But that's the glory that God wants to bring to our lives. He wants so, so much so, that ancient Christians and ancient teachers and even John Wesley, if I can bring ancient Christianity all the way up to the the 1800s, I mean the 18th century, John Wesley even believed I, he wanted to take communion four or five days a week. He didn't want to take it every day because he thought I need to back away from it for a minute or two to contemplate it. But once a week wasn't enough. He wanted it every day. I mean, wanted it four or five times a week because of what he understood it did for his soul. And that's why when the Wesleyan revivals swept through England, the mass evangelism of John Wesley was not like the mass evangelism of Billy Graham. He didn't just preach this message and now make repent. And No, he, after they repented, he said, now we need to give them the Lord's Supper. I mean, he would preach to 10,000 people. There's, you could read it in his journals. John Wesley's journals, it talks about him turning to Charles and seeing thousands of people and saying, Charles, how are we going to feed all these people the Lord's Supper? But we're going to do it. Why? Because it's how their souls were fed. Deep stuff. I get passionate about that. Okay? Because you don't know what you're missing until you know what you don't know. I don't know if that made sense either. Did to me. Okay? So... So, because I think Jesus wants to say so much to us. And, and John wants to why is John such a mystical gospel? Why is John painting such mystical, spiritual? He's not concerned with history. He's not concerned with the chronology of history, let's say. He is concerned with history. I mean, he writes things that are historical truth. But he's not concerned with the chronology. He tells the story differently than all the other gospels because he's building a beautiful case for this mystical encounter with the risen Lord. Which is, is he filled with the Holy Spirit and like the Spirit just like Absolutely, absolutely. John was filled with the whole, you mean John the writer here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's filled with the Spirit because the Spirit is moving him to write it this way. And I think that's part of the beauty of why John's gospel is so different because it was John became an old man. He's the only apostle that lived into old age. And as became an old man, he, he has seen the church now, Church of Jesus Christ, growing and spreading across the world for several decades. And he knows there are other Gospels. He's read them. They've been written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he says there's more to tell. The Holy Spirit said they're ready. They're ready for more. Okay? So John picks up a quill and a piece of papyrus, and he starts to write and just let this mystery flow and it's beautiful and we're going to we're going to look at the beauty of that mystery in a new way next week when we gather to talk about Lazarus when Jesus 
raises the dead. You don't want to miss next week when he talks about raising the dead. So, let's finish this week. Let's finish the 10th chapter of John by looking at these final closing words. In verse 40 through 42, John, he never puts in these clues just arbitrarily. He says that Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had first baptized. And there he remained. Now, scholars have done some chronological work here and believe he stayed there a few months, a couple of months anyway. This is in the winter. This is the feast. Of, this is around Christmas time. Hanukkah, remember, from last week? He stays there a couple of months, and then it's time to march towards Jerusalem for the glory of the cross. Okay? But why did he go to Bethany beyond the Jordan? Why? He had to return to where he first was blessed by the... Ah, you're giving me goosebumps that you got that. He, he went back. He, he, you can see him just frustrated probably in his humanity with these, these Pharisees that just won't open their eyes and see what's so obvious and believe. And so he needs time with the Father. He goes back. It's like it's like his home away from home. You know, the only home he had was with his mother Mary growing up. It's said that Jesus had no home once he became this itinerant traveling uh, teacher throughout Israel. But Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close dear friends and he could stay there and they're where they live where John was baptizing and it's where Jesus was baptized. It's where Jesus, if we look back at the story of Jesus' baptism, it says the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit came down as if like a dove and he heard the words saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That was Jesus' epiphany. Okay, what does the word epiphany mean? It's a moment of realization. It's a moment of, of, of just, you know, the... The real, the, it just everything fits together and everything becomes clear. And Jesus has been growing up as a young man. He's grown into adulthood. He's worked from his father's carpenter shop. We don't know what he did those first 30 years, but we know it's all been forming and shaping who he is as not only the son of God, but also the son of man. And knowing that his father's drawing him out on this journey. And, and it all has to start at baptism. And it starts in this beautiful baptism down by the... And so can you imagine what Jesus felt when he walked down, to, when they returned to the Jordan and he crossed it to go to Bethany? Imagine what he felt. And it, and it even says there, the people there are different there. The people there, they, they all thought John was pretty special because he was a, the first prophet in a long time. And, and then they, they've been hearing about this Jesus. And it says here that... These people around there said, well, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So over the couple of months he was there, lots of people are seeing, boy, this Jesus really is the guy John spoke about. He really is the Messiah. And they began to believe in him. And he was nurtured and strengthened. But I wonder how many times, how many times we do that, we, we need that. How many, have you ever done a pilgrimage, not a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, I although that's wonderful, but a pilgrimage to where God first called you. Have you ever been so distraught in your life or so frustrated you just needed to go back and walk those steps again? 
it's, it's powerful. I did once, and then I found out the church was locked up. I was like, <laughs> what the heck? The church was locked. It, it's powerful, I tell you. We need that. Jesus needed it. In his humanity, he needed to be nurtured and strengthened and refreshed, nourished by, by a return to the waters where he was first baptized and where he began his ministry, if you will. We need that too. So I want to encourage you this week. What is your story? Where did God first find you? Where did you find him? And what, what was it about? What was it like? Yeah, it may be in other cities and you can't go back there, but you can in your mind and in your heart. Go back there and revisit that place. Um, I know I'm blessed to live in a place where I, I can walk down. I, and I, I never, it, it, rarely do I walk by, I won't say never, rarely do I walk by the altar in our church without remembering the time that I very first knelt there. And the spot, I'll go to the spot. I know where it was. And I can remember what it was like. That's what Jesus is doing. Going out to the, beyond the river, Jordan there. And so we're going to pick up the story next week with his, uh, with his time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in chapter 11. So questions, thoughts, comments, anything today? That we can continue to clear up for you. Appreciate your studying so much with me. Um, this, is a, this is the type of thing that we just don't want to take for granted. There's some deep meaning here behind the scriptures that, that if we'll take the time, God wants us to draw them out. Um, that's why you can just read the scriptures over and over and always learn something new. And I, don't, I haven't even scratched the surface of it. So there is so much to, to learn. Thank you for your time in taking it each week as you do. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you for the precious gift of your written word, the Holy Bible, the living word of Jesus in, in, in written form that we can read and encounter and study. And, and I pray that as we read and encounter and study that you truly would give the gift of your spirit to bring these words to life uh, in our hearts, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. To, to transform us, to call us to ever deeper relationship with you, to become partakers of your divine nature. So Father, as you send us out today, be with us in all we do and say, and let all that we do and say in every breath we take give you glory, for you are our very breath. We thank you now for this time together in Jesus' strong, holy name, the name of our Lord and Savior, lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us.